Prosopagnosia, the inability to recognize faces, occurs in up to 2% of the population. Most people struggle with it alone, unaware it even has a name. The stories in this podcast can be painful and hilarious. Join us for an exploration of the people, science, and realities of this condition. Maybe you have a hard time remembering faces. Come for the stories, stay for the coping techniques. My guest today is an author, frequent contributor to the New York Times, photographer, and deeply involved in preserving the legacy of Oliver Sacks. He was Oliver's partner until his death in 2015. Bill Hayes, welcome to the show. Thanks so much for having me. Well, first, thank you for coming on the show. It's 2020 now, mm -hmm. and uh, my father passed away in 2016, and that still seems like yesterday to me. Yeah. So I'm really sensitive to how hard this may still be for you and appreciative of you coming on. Thank you very much. Um, yeah, it's been four and a half, almost five years since Oliver died. So uh, life is a lot less interesting. I'll put it that mm. way. Um, and I still miss him, but uh, I'm busy with lots of work and uh, doing pretty well. Good. Yeah. Well, we talked about the purpose of this um, podcast and, you know, I appreciate you coming on as, uh, you know, a partner of someone with face blindness that might have interesting perspectives. Mm -hmm. My wife has great stories to tell about me, for example. <laughs> um, but when people find out about face blindness and they start Googling it, um, Oliver Sacks shows up high on the list of all search results pretty quickly. Yes, yes. In fact, I, I did a little Googling this morning and right away there were three, two or three videos of Oliver talking about his prosopagnosia um, and I watched them. It was fun to watch them. Well, uh, so he was a famous neurologist. I, I have to say maybe the most famous neurologist uh, that the public might have actually heard of. Probably in the 20th century for sure. Yeah. And, you know, I read his book, um, you know, which is another favorite with uh, prosopagnosics. I have a hard time with that word, but mm -hmm. uh, the man who mistook his w wife for a hat. Exactly. Um, and he mentions it in there mm -hmm. um, with one of the case studies. But for people who maybe haven't heard of Oliver yet, um, if it's not too much to ask, could you kind of give your summary of him and his and his life and his work? Well, Oliver was, as you said, a neurologist, but an especially brilliant and empathetic one, uh, and equally a writer. Um, over the course of his lifetime, he published, I think, 13 books. And then we have published three books posthumously of his work, essays, and so on. Um, he's best known for his case histories of people with unusual neurological disorders or neuro neurological diseases. And um, I think the sort of signal um, of the work is that he uh, humanizes the patients, that these are not disabilities, but is really focusing on how people adapt to sometimes difficult circumstances. Um, so that was sort of his, his mission and, and how he is known. He, you know, through his books, he wrote about a vast number of subjects um, and was one of the first to really surface publicly discussions about autism and Asperger's syndrome and uh, Tourette's syndrome and 
Uh, and of course, the agnosias, um, including prosopagnosia, which we're talking about today. Um, aside from all that, Oliver was almost like a 19th century man, <laughs> 19th century polymath and natural scientist who had deep knowledge about many, many subjects outside of medicine, botany, evolutionary biology, geology, uh, ferns, music, literature. So um, he was very brilliant, but at the same time, not the least bit pompous. He was <laughs> quite modest and shy. And as I learned when I got to know him, I think his shyness had something to do with his face blindness. Um, it's something he'd always had since he was a boy, but it wasn't until much later in life that he realized it was a real condition. Did he, do you know if he knew that he had a, a sort of self-diagnosed with prosopagnosia um, when he was writing the case study in uh, The Man Who Mistook his, his Wife for a Hat? I think he did know. I think he did know. And um, he, throughout his work, although it's there's quite a range that he writes about, he has, there's a kind of thread and interest in visual perception, especially, and the agnosias. So I think it made him perhaps even more equipped to empathize with someone like Dr. P, the patient in The Man Who Mistook His Wife for a Hat. Um, because although Dr. P's case was ex very extreme, where he was, instead of seeing a fire hydrant, he would see a small child, or he mistook his wife for a hat. Um, that was at a very extreme end of the spectrum. With Oliver's face blindness, I think that perhaps did give him some insight and empathy into how these how these systems can work in the brain and, and how one adapts to them and lives with them because they're not necessarily curable or treatable in any way. What, what I was, um, I may be misremembering this, so correct me if I'm wrong, but um, as I was reading Dr. P's story, uh, I didn't, I don't recall any self-referential. No, no. That, you know, that kind of doesn't come until later in his career where he begins writing more about himself and sort of opening up. In fact, um, just this morning in thinking about this, our interview, this podcast, I was thinking about his career and how um, it was really more towards the end of the life and when I was his life and when I was with him that he began writing more personally and really opening up. And the prosopagnosia piece, the face blindness piece, was um, a big step in that. <laughs> a big step in that sort of coming out um, because it was something he'd known about for a long time and something I only came to understand as I get, got to know him. But to write about it with such knowledge and such insight and personal stories and amusing stories. Uh, the piece on face blindness first appeared in The New Yorker, I think in August 2010. And then, as you said, it's in his book, The Mind's Eye, which sort of thematically deals with visual disorders and, and perception. And um, I think he was kind of thunderstruck by the response to the piece when it came out in The New Yorker, because so many people wrote in or wrote to his office or his website saying that, oh my God, 
I have this too. And I never knew there was a name for it and a condition and that, you know, there's a spectrum. So um, that was, uh, I, I still get people today who tell me that they figured out they have face blindness from reading that Oliver Sacks piece. Um, following the mind's eye, his next book was Hallucinations, which deals with, as the title suggests, hallucinations. And in that book, he wrote in very candid, open, unapologetic, um, personal detail about his drug addiction and drug use. And then with his final book in his lifetime, his memoir on the move, he really wrote about his whole adult life, his professional life and missteps and problems he'd had, but also about his sexuality and about being gay and about our relationship. And uh, in a way that was the, the ultimate coming out for Oliver. When did you meet um, and how long was your relationship? We actually met in 2008 in the most old fashioned way. I was living in San Francisco at that time. Um, and I'd written a book called The Anatomist, which tells the story behind, it's a nonfiction book telling the story behind the 19th century anatomy text, Gray's Anatomy. And it's virtually a biography of Henry Gray mixed in with a chronicle of my learning anatomy alongside med students at uh, UCSF in San Francisco. Anyway, Oliver read my book and wrote me a letter. And I got a letter out of the blue. Virtually. He was living in New York? He was in New York and I was in San Francisco. And uh, return address, Oliver Sacks. I couldn't believe it because I had read a few of his books. And of course, I read his pieces in the New Yorker and admired his work very much. But so, was, so he picked this up on his own. You didn't yeah, send that to him? No. Um, and the re one of the reasons was that both of his folks were physicians and two of his older brothers were doctors. So he grew up in a household with Gray's Anatomy, the, the very text that I was writing about. But he'd never known anything about Henry Gray, so he was interested. And his letter to me was just, you know, very collegial, one from one writer to another, um, congratulating me. And so I wrote him back. And then to my surprise, he wrote a letter back to me. <laughs> and we had a little correspondence. Um, but it was all quite professional. And then for reasons completely unrelated to Oliver, I decided to move to New York about a year later. So this is 2009. And uh, once I moved here, we started hanging out and getting to know each other and, and very quickly became a couple within, you know, within months. So we were together from 2009 to until his death in August 2015, you know. So in 2009, then, when you got together, uh, you're exploring New York City together, mm -hmm. uh, getting to know each other. Did you, did face blindness come up early? It did. I mean, I, I don't remember like a specific first instance. Um, I just, <laughs> I just realized it was a kind of, it was a quirk of Oliver that he didn't seem to fully recognize people. I think I noticed it most within his apartment building, um, riding the elevator with neighbors, and he didn't seem to acknowledge or recognize neighbors. And they would, everyone in the building pretty much knew who Dr. Sachs was, but he didn't necessarily recognize or know the names of neighbors. Um, I later learned that after his 
face blindness piece came out that some neighbors just thought Dr. Sachs was very aloof and rude. Mm. <laughs> um, but it wasn't that at all. It was that, I mean, he, he recognized people's dogs better than he recognized people's faces. Sad to say, but that was, that was the truth. <laughs> um, but I just recognized it as kind of a quirk. Um, and, and sort of the opposite of me, as it turns out, I'm someone who, remembers and recognizes faces, even let's say of a waiter from two or three years ago. Um, if I see that waiter on the street, I'll remember, oh my God, that was that guy in that restaurant. Oh, you'll not only recognize them, but recognize where you know them from. Yeah. And I have a pretty good memory for names as well. So I'm sort of at the other end of the spectrum. I'm not, as Oliver had the term super recognizers, I, I don't think I'm that, but I'm pretty good. So I just always thought, oh, that's odd. You know, he doesn't he doesn't really recognize people. But it wasn't too long after we became a couple, maybe late 2009 or early 2010, that he began writing the piece um, ultimately called Face Blindness, which was, as I said, in the New Yorker and then in the mind's eye. So once he plunged into that topic and really began exploring the neurology and the history and putting together his own stories, um, then I really fully understood what this was, that it wasn't just a quirk, that it was um, a quirky neurological disorder, a difference, nothing more than that. And his face blindness was, uh, you know, when I look at it, uh, most of the people I meet are on some sort of a spectrum with this. Mm -hmm. I hate using that term because people think autism, but, uh, you know, there there are uh, various levels of severity. So mm -hmm. uh, I'm quite mild, um, but Oliver famously in one of the uh, reports on national news described, I think it maybe it was 60 Minutes, I'm not mm -hmm. sure, but uh, he described, uh, you know, seeing uh, this strange lanky man uh, with a beard and, <laughs> uh, you know, said something to him, but it was a reflection of himself in a full length mirror in a hotel, I think. Yeah. I, I mean, I think things like that happened when he and I were together too. He, uh, <laughs> he, and one of the, one of the things about Oliver is that when things like that happened, he found it very amusing. He wasn't, uh, <laughs> upset about it. He found it amusing. Um, one of the paradoxes about Oliver Sacks, however, uh, and maybe this is true of you too, so you should you should tell me or others. Um, although he couldn't recognize faces, and he also had trouble uh, equally recognizing places. He had topographic agnosia as well, um, but he had nearly a photographic memory, um, so Oliver could remember the exact page number and placement of a paragraph in a book he had read many mm. years ago and be able to find it or equally to recite lines from a poem he had recognized as a, I mean, he had memorized, excuse me, as a, a teenager. Um, so he had an incredible, almost photographic memory yet. Um, I am not blessed with that affliction. <laughs> nor am I, nor am I nor am I. <laughs> um, and the other th odd sort of thing he had in terms of visual perception is that he wasn't easily able to envision things in his mind's eye. So if I were to think to myself, close your eyes and try to envision a picture of Oliver or 
of a black car or a white dog. I can close my eyes and I can see a white dog in my mind's eye. Oliver could not do that. He didn't have that ability. And that, that did kind of frustrate him. Um, he, uh, I don't know if that is linked to prosopagnosia at all, but he didn't have that kind of visual ability in his mind's eye. But, you know, he had these other great gifts. Sometimes when there's um, a deficit, there's a great surplus or excess in another part of the brain. And I think his photographic memory speaks to that. So you said that um, he might chuckle when it, what, what I say typically is that I make when I make a mistake. And, mm -hmm. and I'm finding as I'm talking to other people with face blindness that that's a pretty common term people have come up with for themselves. Right. But, you know, when you make a mistake, so you don't recognize someone and I'm using air quotes that you should recognize, mm -hmm. um, you know, often for me and for a lot of people that I talk to, um, we see that as a failing or we feel bad about it. Uh, yeah. We're worried that the other person is going to think that, um, you know, they're not important enough for us to remember, or we're just rude, as you said. Mm -hmm. um, did he have that kind of anxiety or maybe just, uh, I think did, he did. didn't like the feeling. Yeah. No, okay. I think he definitely did. And I think, um, I mean, when I met him, he was 75 and I was 48. So by that time in his life, he had, I think <laughs> fully accepted it, but I think as a younger man, um, and for many, many years, it was, upsetting. It was troubling. Um, I think it was a great contributor to his shyness. He was, I think, already shy um, and sort of inhibited. Um, but um, I think it contributed to that because he was not very good in social situations. And I found once I became his partner that I could help him, that I, that I could say if we were in the elevator with some neighbors, you know, oh, you remember Roz or um, something like that. Oh, Bless you. Yeah. <laughs> and, uh, and his assistants um, would do that as well and close friends. So if, if he was having a party or we were at a party, friends would know to, if they brought someone up to introduce them to Oliver, to remind Oliver of who they were <laughs> and to introduce the person with the name. Um, and with really close friends or people he saw a lot, like me or his assistants or close friends, he, he you know, came to recognize us. Uh, that, that was going to be my next question. Yeah. yeah. So I, you know, typically for me, it's like anywhere from maybe six to 20, what I call impressions, mm -hmm. uh, you know, that's meaningful interactions. Or sometimes I can look at someone's Skype photo and, uh, you know, enough times that might start to sink in. Right. Although what I think I'm doing is building up a alternate um, collection of items about the person, like mm -hmm. their hair. It can be even something like, uh, you know, they've got uh, a U shape in their male pattern baldness or something, you know? <laughs> mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And, and so I, I collect that with like the ear shape and that sort of thing. I think this is really common for people yeah. uh, who don't have the severest forms, but you can eventually put together, you know, a, a reasonable recognition system for people that you interact with a lot. So mm -hmm. that, that was possible for him. Yeah, it definitely was. Um, I think just like you, he would zero in on a particularly memorable aspect of a person's face. Um, 
their bright white teeth or red hair or uh, very blue eyes or whatever. So I think that was part of it. And then again, going back to neighbors, sometimes it was the dog that would help them help him cue. Oh, that's who that is. Cause I recognize the dog. He didn't seem to have trouble recognizing animals. I'm not sure why. Yeah, it's funny you should mention that. Um, the first interview I did for this podcast was uh, with a really interesting lady from Italy, uh, Anatel- Antonella Gismundi, um, who is uh, a translator mm-hmm. and um, uh, actor in uh, Taiwan. Uh-huh. And uh, she talked a lot about, uh, you know, laughingly that she could recognize the pets of her neighbors and the cats in this case. <laughs> and she w- she said she, she felt like she could recognize cats better than people for sure. <laughs> <laughs> I think Oliver Sacks would have said the same thing. And there's a, there's a little connection there too. Uh, this wasn't in the recording, but uh, when I told her that I was going to be speaking with you, she, I, I think was amazed and, uh, she said that um, she decided to study linguistics hmm. after reading one of Oliver Sacks' books. Yeah, it's um, oh, I've I've heard so many stories about people deciding to go into one field or the other, uh, whether it's medicine or not, uh, because of reading one of Oliver Sacks' books. Um, that continues to this day, and I think it will continue long beyond my own lifetime. Mm. And I think his sort of publicly surfacing his own prosopagnosia, writing about it so eloquently and with in a spirit of kind of something that's interesting and different, not a disability or disorder. I think that um, is one part of a very vast legacy. Well, so so I'm not the first person to say this. I definitely recognized it, um, you know, when I read his book. Uh, mm-hmm he is covering something that should be fairly dry and impenetrable and not appealing to uh, mainstream public mm-hmm. readers. Mm-hmm. But he had this uh, sort of lyrical way of writing about case studies that I, I, it's just fun to read. It's interesting. Yeah. He makes it. And inter- I mean, the subject matter is pretty interesting anyway. Some of these uh, right. neurological disorders are extreme. Um, but usually when you read case studies like that, they are very dry. Yeah. Well, he was as gifted as a storyteller as he was as a neurologist. Um, and I think storyteller is a a really good word for, to describe Oliver's talent. Um, plus his writing is often very beautiful. And as he said, lyrical, um, he, you know, as a, as a kid, he loved the Sherlock Holmes stories. Uh, so sometimes the case histories are constructed almost like detective stories where he is sort of, you know, someone writes him a letter or, or calls him and tells him about some disorder or disability. And he becomes almost like a detective trying to figure it out. I'm a little ashamed uh, to admit this, but... Um... I didn't realize that uh, Oliver uh, was the inspiration behind uh, one of my favorite movies as a kid. So I mm. was born in 73, but um, I consider myself a child of the 80s and mm-hmm. um, Awakenings. Awakenings, yes. Yes, Awakenings, the film, um, is based on his uh, second book, 
with that title, Awakenings. Um, and Robin Williams played a character who was modeled after Oliver Sacks. And uh, really, I think the portrayal of the doctor in that film is, is just spot on. Um, he really did pick up some of Oliver's mannerisms and gestures. He didn't try to do an imitation. I mean, for example, he didn't try to do a British accent like Oliver had. But he, he somehow captured the spirit of Oliver in that film. And then, of course, Robert De Niro is one of the patients. Yeah, it's, it's a very, it's a great film. Did Robin and Oliver uh, work together on that directly? Did they get to know each other? Oh, they got, they became very close. Um, they became very close friends. Uh, he was on set, I think, as sort of an advisor and also an observer. And he and Robin just clicked. And uh, their friendship continued up until Robin's very tragic death, I think, was the year before Oliver's. So they um, traveled together a few times and he would spend summers with him and his family at Lake Tahoe and corresponded. And um, yeah, he was a, a good friend and it was a tragic loss. Hmm. Uh, you can take some time if you need to. Um, you've already shared some sort of firsthand stories. Um, I always uh, like the the funny stories, you know, like the the best mistakes. Um, can can you recall any other uh, really prominent mistakes that you remember him making, or uh, you know, funny situations that he got himself into? I wish I could. I've really been racking my brain. <laughs> and in fact, I reread the uh, face blindness piece and face blindness chapter. I think he told all the best ones. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Um, or I would just be repeating those. Yeah. Um, and then it just became, you know, part of our daily life, our regular life. I didn't think about it that much. I just, um, it just became reflexive and natural for me to help him out, especially in social situations. Oh, reflexive to be that, that helper. And, yeah. And, yeah. And it, it, it might be that, uh, Hey, if you've, uh, you know, if your partner has a hard time walking up the stairs, you right. just grab their arm naturally. You don't think, uh, oh, I'm helping my partner because they have a hard time walking up the stairs. Right. Or that I would be embarrassed by it or, or find it odd or that I would be critical. It was just part of who Oliver was. Um, and uh, and he helped me out in, in different ways as well. What, what ways did he help you out? Uh, very supportive of my own work. I'm a writer uh, as well, um, but different kinds of writing. And uh, when I moved to New York, I bought a camera and became a photographer, really self-taught. And as I said earlier, Oliver is someone who was deeply knowledgeable about many subjects, including the history of photography and the chemistry of photography. And um, so he had a good critical eye as well. And he really helped me to develop my own eye as a photographer. Um, and a couple of years ago, I published my first book of my photography, street photography. Uh, so I, I was going to say, you know, um, I <clears throat> was looking at, I, I don't know if it was Instagram or Facebook. I'm not very good with social media, but uh, mm -hmm. might've been Instagram. I, I noticed that um, you had a bunch of uh, New Year's shots of uh, people on the street in New York. Is that your yeah. general subject? From the very beginning, I moved here, bought a camera solely with the purpose of just exploring New York and taking pictures when I felt like it. 
but um, pretty quickly became serious about it and was always interested in taking pictures of people, uh, sort of on the spot portraits. And um, my method has always been to approach people, strangers, and ask them, may I take your picture? Um, so it's not street photography that's like, you know, voyeuristic or with a telephoto lens or something. Mm. Um, I want people to know and give them the option. And half the time they say no, and half the time they say yes, sure. And um, so that's always been my, my thing. But it's a very quick interaction. I just um, try to get a sort of on-the-spot, very uh -huh. um, spontaneous portrait uh -huh. of a fellow New Yorker. And usually that's the last time I ever see or speak to them again. And you're definitely in New York. I can hear the, the horns behind you. Yes, <laughs> I heard that too. I'm right off 8th Avenue. Yeah. I have all the windows closed, but yeah, you can hear the honking and the sirens. Oh, I love um, it. Slice of life. Yeah. In fact, I live now in what was Oliver's apartment, which I've renovated and moved into since his death. And uh, it's a great space. So, wow, I don't know if I could do that. The spirit of Oliver is with us. <laughs> That's wonderful. Yeah. Um, before, you know, at the very end, I'd like you to talk about the foundation mm -hmm. um, and, and your work there. Mm -hmm. But could you tell us uh, a little bit more about, uh, the, you know, your work as an author, where people can find, um, you know, information about you and your books and your photography? Right. Um, well, I have a website, BillHayes.com, um, where my five books are, there's details about my five different books um, and uh, selections of my photography. And my books are available through Amazon or any independent bookstore, usually. Um, I think I'm probably best known for my most recent book, my most recent prose book, which is a memoir called Insomniac City. And Insomniac City tells the story of um, my life in New York, including my life with Oliver Sacks. So it's a sort of a, about my romance with New York and my romance with Oliver. And it includes about 40 of my street photographs in the book. And um, I am currently working on the screenplay for a film adaptation of Insomniac City. So um, that's what I've been working on all morning. So someone, a producer, independent film producer, has bought the rights to this memoir, and uh, we're going to make a film. And then I'm also working on another new book and photography. <laughs> All nonfiction for you? Yeah, all nonfiction. Although there are aspects of writing the screenplay that have to be sort of fictionalized in that you're recreating, you're creating dialogue sometimes from just memory, really. Um, but fortunately, I have a good memory and I can hear Oliver's voice in my head. So when, when it's Oliver Sacks dialogue, it's, it's pretty easy for me. He had a very distinctive way of speaking. Um, and the prosopagnosia, the face blindness, comes into it because when we first met in person, his assistant had given him a picture of me, or maybe he was carrying the book itself, which had, which had an author photo. But he couldn't recognize me in the restaurant. First of all, he wasn't good at recognizing people, of course, but 
in the photograph, I didn't have a beard. And then, <laughs> and then by the time we met, I had a beard. So there was no way he was going to recognize me. But I knew who Dr. Sachs was and what he looked like. So I approached him. But, uh, but at that moment, I didn't know that he had face blindness. That didn't emerge until much later. So you uh, mentioned that you've published several uh, new works, mm-hmm. posthumous, I can't say that word, Poth- posthumous, you'll have to say that for oh, me. Oh, no, no, I'm going to have trouble <laughs> saying it. Um, <laughs> let's see, posthumous. Yes. Yes. We've After done, his death. Yeah, I'm, I'm really proud of that. Um, he appointed three of us as sort of his literary editors or executors after his death. The first book is a little book called Gratitude, which comprises his four really amazing now classic essays that he wrote in the last year of his life about facing his own death. Um, it's a beautiful little book. Um, The second book is called The River of Consciousness. Um, This is a book that Oliver sort of outlined for us before his death, so we knew what he had in mind. Um, And it is a book um, dealing with the history of science and looking at human consciousness and some of his great heroes like Charles Darwin and William James and Sigmund Freud. And then just last year, last April, we published the last collection of the essays of Oliver Sacks, uncollected essays. And that book is called Everything in Its Place. And that is a full range from memoir pieces to travel pieces to case histories that have either never been published before or never collected in a book. So he knew that he wanted these collected in some way and Mm -hmm. gave you the source material. You didn't have to go searching for it and find secret things hidden behind uh, dressers and that sort of thing. (laughs) A little bit of both. Um, With gratitude, we did talk to him about it before his death and he loved that idea. Those essays in the New York Times had a very huge readership and there was a great outpouring um, after those pieces, each of them was published. So he liked the idea of collecting them into a little book, just them, and it's very short. The River of Consciousness, he really had given thought to, um, and we pretty much followed his exact outline. I think we just added one more piece. Everything in its place, though, was a little bit more like what you imagined, um, going through his archives, looking for pieces that hadn't been published and that stood up to the test of time. Um, or that had been published in obscure places and that were hardly seen at all. You know, Oliver is well is f- still famous and was well known for publishing in the New Yorker and the New York Review of Books, um, New York Times. But he also published in very obscure medical journals and literary journals. He had no sort of pretentiousness about that. And we found some really amazing pieces that were in these small literary or medical journals that uh, very few people had ever seen. So um, that was more of a hunting process and, and fun and, and challenging, <laughs> very challenging. Cause we knew, we knew the book had to be as good as any Oliver Sacks book. And um, I will fully admit I'm very biased, but he's somewhat unusual. I think in that if you look at his whole body of work, all 16 books to this point. 
um, there's really not a clunker among them. Um, they're all they're all quite strong um, and take on different subjects. So that was a pressure that we felt with this final collection that it had to be as good as anything he'd ever published. So what is the mission or maybe the scope of the foundation? And you can, you know, please uh, give the web address for that too. Um, yeah, it's oliversax.com. And um, there's all kinds of information about Oliver and the foundation there. Uh, the primary mission at the moment is still continuing and enhancing the legacy of Oliver Sacks. Um, this has kept us busier than we might have even imagined. I mean, with these three books over the past four years um, and other projects, there's a major documentary film on Oliver that has been in the works since the year he became ill and um, includes a series of pretty extraordinary interviews in the last months of his life but also chronicles his entire life um, from boyhood to his incredible work with the Awakenings patients and on and on and on. So it's a major film. It's been playing at film festivals in 2019, and then it will open nationwide, I think in the spring or summer next year, or this year, or in 2020. Um, and it's called Oliver Sacks, His Own Life. And uh, it's wonderful. So we've worked with the filmmakers on that. Um, there's a definitive biography in the works, um, a really splendid writer named Laura Snyder, who has exclusive access to the archive and is going to write, I think, a, a great and definitive biography of Oliver. That's a few years away, because she's the, the archive is huge. And some of our work has been involved with getting the archive really organized and uh, placing it with a major institution. Um, so at the moment we're, we're busy with all of that, um, but I think there's a larger mission to sort of heighten awareness about neurological disorders and differences and um, try to support and continue the kind of work that Oliver really believed in. Hmm. Bill, I really appreciate you taking the time. Of course. This was more, more than I could have asked for. Thank you so much. You're so welcome. Thank you for having me. For more info on this episode or prosopagnosia in general, visit faceblindpodcast.com. Thanks for listening.